And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where usually we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and rank them from best to worst. But once a month, we watch a horror-adjacent movie selected by our patrons. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Ooh, I feel like I've just run a marathon with the amount of research I had to do about this movie. Yeah, um, when this got selected on our Patreon poll, I was like, okay, this is going to be some work. <laughs> this is going to be some work. To be fair, we choose what goes on the poll. Sure. So it's sure. our own doing. Yeah, you could say that. Um, but part of the reason why we do these bonus episodes is because we hit that goal tier on Patreon. So we do this because of the generosity and support of everyone over at Patreon. So shout out to our patrons. Um, Thank you so much. We wouldn't and couldn't do this without you. And we hope you enjoy this month's bonus episode. So what are we watching? Tonight, Sarah, we are watching The Mask of Fu Manchu from 1932, mostly directed by Charles Braben and starring Boris Karloff. So why don't you walk us through why this is considered a horror-adjacent episode? I'm also very interested to know about this, like, mostly directed. Yeah, it's one of those kinds of movies. Yeah. Um, So this film was produced as part of the, like, initial Hollywood horror boom after Dracula and Frankenstein and is sort of, like, part of that milieu and was definitely, like, created for the purpose of jumping on that trend and competing with those movies. So a lot of the times it gets lumped in mm. with those films because that was kind of the Petri dish that created this movie, <laughs> I guess you could say. And probably what also led to the casting of Boris Karloff. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Um, but I can talk a little bit more about that when I set the table for the movie itself. So before I start talking, though, about like that moment in horror history and kind of setting the table for why this movie happened there's a lot of like broader table setting that needs to go on for this movie um you know because well (laughs) fu manchu for one thing does not originate from this movie he's a literary character with a, a literary history and then for another thing that literary history is sort of part of a like wider cultural moment in the history of the world and that cultural moment is part of like a wider sort of historical context. And, you know, it's one of those like, in order to solve the mystery, (laughs) you have to solve the society that the mystery happened in kind of situations. Um, I would also describe it as you start pulling on one thread and suddenly the whole sweater falls apart. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So how far back in time are we starting, Sarah? Uh, Well, let's start with, 1913. Okay, that's not too bad. Fu Manchu was a character first introduced in the novel titled The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu. The author, Arthur Henry Sarsfeld Ward, also known as Sax Romer. I can see, yeah, much better name. Better (laughs) name, definitely. 
would write a total of 13 novels featuring the character of Fu Manchu as a reoccurring villain. Fomer described Fu Manchu as, quote, the yellow peril incarnate, end quote. So let's break down what yellow peril means. Indeed. There might be people in our audience who've never heard that term. Yeah. Now, my first exposure to yellow peril um, as a concept and kind of recognizing it in media was in the context of World War II anti-Japanese propaganda. Sure. And while these stereotypes um, that were used have its basis in yellow peril, yellow peril as a uh, what's known as a color metaphor has much older origins. For sure. I think it's really appropriate to call Fu Manchu yellow peril incarnate because I'm pretty sure like my first awareness of the concept of yellow peril as a its own thing and not just like racism against Asian people in general like it comes from being aware of Fu Manchu as like a pop culture character mm-hmm. and the characters that he influenced. Definitely a big part of his legacy. Now, just to briefly add an asterisk here, color metaphor is single sentence definition of yellow peril is um, the xenophobia around Asian countries having supremacy over Western white countries and people yeah it's the idea that like the east poses an existential threat to western civilization um now yellow of course being uh tied to racist descriptions i guess of um asian people's skin yeah sort of like within the same system of like white and black except that like the the meanings of those terms have evolved yeah outside of like this original like sort of classification system i guess yeah that's why i thought it would just be like good to just say like this is why they're using these words yes now the phrase yellow peril was first coined in 1897 by a russian sociologist who is describing the cultural fear of asian people as a threat to white western civilized nations Lots of, like, air quotes Mm. here. It entered popular use when Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany used it in a speech. Um, And he was using this phrase to encourage the colonization of China specifically, as well as around opposing the imperialism of Japan. If you're thinking to yourself, colonize China, don't people already live there? That's what colonization is, my friends. Indeed. You have taken your first step into a larger world. Consider the fact that all places that are colonized have already had people living there. (laughs) And um, I think what's also interesting is uh, this phrase coming out of Russia. Um, Because here in Canada, growing up here, I never really considered Russia, quote unquote, Western. And so there's a lot going on there but a big reason why russia and uh russian citizens uh would be um aware and have this existential threat around asian imperialism is because they are right next to japan mongolia and china as well as like other eastern countries 
Yeah, Russia being as big as it is, is essentially a, I'll say, Western identifying and European identifying nation, which at the time was like an empire that, you know, contained a lot of people who like wouldn't be considered white by the standards of that period, but like who were under Russian rule. So, you know, it's a white nation, quote unquote. And, you know, being a nation that identifies itself as such that actually, you know, bordered all of these places as opposed to like England or Germany, where this is like more of a theoretical uh, Mm -hmm. concern. Theoretical, but they are all empires. Yes. Russian Empire, German Empire, British Empire, Empire, French Empire. Like they're all in the process during this time and earlier colonizing areas of Africa, areas of, I'll say like the Asian Pacific islands, uh, Canada, you know, yeah, any anywhere that one of the other empires hasn't gotten to yet. Exactly. Yeah. So it's almost like a not quite, but like an arms race to colonize. And so, you know, Germany is like, well, we want to colonize China for all its spices and tea. So let's go there because, we, you know, we have to strike first before um, Asians get to us uh, here in Germany. Yeah, it's it's like a thing where it's like we want to colonize this place for all the reasons that empires like to colonize places and you can kind of sell that to your population if you present those people as a threat they're scary yeah let's get them yeah (laughs) now um i think it's also important to add a little asterisk here as well about orientalism Mm. some of this ties into what we were talking about with russia and uh china and japan so if you want to read more and learn more about Orientalism as a concept and as a, as a, a cultural trend and critique that trend, I would recommend you check out the 1978 book titled Orientalism by Edward Said. 1978 is like a little old, but he's kind of the one who first, well, put a name to it with Orientalism and put in the critique and got people to really start engaging with these ideas rather than just accepting them. And in that book, Saeed talks about the West's depiction of the East as backward, um, being a place of subjugation. There's a lot of mystery, sexuality, sensuality, and danger. If you think about the common depiction of, let's go with the Middle East, uh, before 9-11, let's say, um, definitely a place of mystery. You think of um, belly dancers and harems and danger with scythes fighting off against uh, Indiana Jones, right? right? Orientalism is sort of like the other side of the yellow peril coin. Yes, in that um, the goal is to other and exacerbate the otherness of the people over there. Mm-hmm. So West versus East, um, and East including North Africa, Egypt, Palestine, India, all the way to Japan. Lots of many different cultures mixed in there, but they're all depicted in this uh, othered sense of like, well, look how sexy the women are and how barbaric the men are. A good way to like think about it is... If you're a Marvel Comics fan, <laughs> the Mandarin is Yellow Peril. 
Doctor Strange is Orientalism. Because what you saw, like, at the same time as, like, this fear of Asians is coming to get us is, like, a fetishizing of, like, their aesthetic and their culture, right? You have, like, the blue and white porcelain plates that all the Victorian households had. And you had, like, this idea that, like, you know, if if some charlatan, if some con man wanted to make you think that he was like super wise or good at something, it would be like, I studied abroad in the East for 20 years and learned the secrets of how to do whatever bullshit thing I'm going to do. And this idea that like Eastern culture is like more like spiritual and like you can find Mystic. enlightenment and, you know, among the, the Buddhists and so on. And so you're like fetishizing the culture, but like the people are like dirty and disgusting and... You know, to be feared. Yeah. yeah. So those are the depictions that we are going to be talking about today. <laughs> and uh, if you want to see and learn more about um, early critiques of those depictions, Edward Said is your dude. Yeah. So this yellow peril sentiment and anti-Asian sentiment uh, spread as Asians would immigrate uh, to Western nations Places uh, that were in the British Empire, like Australia, um, Canada, the United Kingdom itself, even down to the United States. And as these newcomers would arrive, they would end up working for lower wages and thus were vilified by uh, people currently living there saying like, well, these people are taking our jobs. They took our jobs. Um, When it's like, "Mm, they're working for lower wages because like they they're newcomers you should be mad at the boss anyways okay reining it in um at the same time um these asian newcomers would also be given very dangerous jobs and quote-unquote dirty jobs uh hence the stereotype of the chinese laundryman um working in a laundry is hard dirty hot no one really wants to do it when you don't really have any other choice for what to do, um, you're going to go with the work that no one else wants to do. And so it becomes a stereotype. And I mean, this is true of like the pattern of immigration to today. Absolutely. Where like whatever culture is the newest wave is going to have the same like they're taking our jobs sentiment thrown at them. And they're also going to have the same like doing the jobs no one wants to do for low money thing like it's this is how immigration tends to go unfortunately and also keep in mind that this is like the mid to late 1800s so here's here's an example asians particularly people from china uh were welcomed into canada yeah come here come build our canadian pacific railway (laughs) which involves uh, a lot of dynamite and thousands and thousands of you immigrants killed yeah, they didn't exactly have, like, workplace safety regulations no. in the 1860s. Uh, there are stories. So Alberta has, like, the Rocky Mountain range of mountains. And uh, there are many stories that you hear growing up about how, like, you have to blow your way through these mountains. You don't know how far you need to go to make these tunnels. Uh, so someone would just, like, go running in with live dynamite and they might not come out. Now that the railway has finished, we're not going to think about giving these newcomers 
um, citizenship for their hard work. We're not really going to do anything except um, put in a Chinese Immigration Act of 1885, which is basically a head tax saying, no, only so many of you can come over here. You might have come here um, to try to get money to bring the rest of your family over, but your family's not going to come. But, you know, maybe, you know, let's think about replacing this in 1923 with uh, just completely banning immigration from China unless they're businessmen, clergy, or students. Mm -hmm. So that's Canada. Mm -hmm. um, we're not good, guys. Sorry. <laughs> we, we're not any better than anywhere else. Yeah, Canadians like to be like, well, at least we're not the States. And it's like, mm, we're still pretty bad. We're different, but still bad. Yeah. Anyways, so... It's a different flavor. <laughs> just of, more maple. Right. We've talked about how Yellow Peril as a concept was weaponized to uh, encourage, like, colonization and imperialism, specifically of China. And a lot of the rhetoric around Asian people, whether they are Chinese, Japanese, Korean, anything, uh, was likening them as you know the majority of them are uncivilized and clean they're heathens because they aren't christians um and the women have no morals they're over overly sexual etc etc um like i said edward Said digs into these tropes further but um again all of it is a process of othering uh and really just they are opposite to our morals right our women are proper and prude not like those women and this othering like these tropes are not specific to the chinese like you you no. recognize once you start analyzing the way that cultures have been othered over time um you recognize like how intrinsically untrue a lot of stereotypes are because the stereotypes aren't things that come about from like observation of the chinese if you look at like okay who's the group we're afraid of now Right. Yeah. And you ask that question, the way that that group is othered is the same every time, you know, it's they're dirty, they're uh, immoral. They aren't good Christians. Their women are floozies. Their men are monsters. They kill babies like it's going to be the same shit mm -hmm. every time. Just yeah. because, as you said, it's the opposite of our morals. You're just presenting them as the bad guys. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, so these racist perceptions found fuel for the fire in a couple of big incidences, um, particularly the Tong Wars, uh, which began in 1880 and went on until like 1920s, 1930s, which is essentially a gang war, like a mafia fight in San Francisco, particularly, um, to summarize it very simply. Families and groups in China having bad blood immigrating to um, it's it's really centered on San Francisco but it was in many other cities as well and then having like gang wars over territory in these new places and the fact that it's like a gang war certainly does not uh, go against the stereotype that uh, the average Asian person would have to fight against right um, the other incident that I want to speak about is the Boxer Rebellion in China, which occurred 1899 to 1901. Again, to kind of simplify this, because this is not a history podcast, is um, the Boxer Rebellion had kind of two sides. One being 
the Boxers, which were an anti-colonial martial arts organization wanting to kick out Westerners and assimilated Asian people out of China um, and kicking them out by killing them. <laughs> and uh, the and others... like probably like literally kicking them like. Well, yeah, yeah. kicking them to kill them. Right. They yeah. were very upfront about wanting to just kill all Westerners and assimilated Asian people. Um, which typically meant uh, Christian Chinese folks. Yeah. Um, and then the other side being the people who either were currently colonizing Asia or were looking to get uh, their piece of the pie. Um, so the UK, Germany, France, Russia, and the US and Japan. Oh, yeah. Formed an alliance to shut down the Boxer Rebellion. And it might be going like, wait. Japan, and that's because, yeah, Japan and China have a long, long history of um, conquest and colonization, um, but also Japan was making friends with the British and the French because of Russia. War makes strange bedfellows. Indeed. Um, the other thing to always kind of keep in mind is when you boil down to it, so many of the things that you think are going to be based in race are more strongly based in class and money. And when we're talking about things on a, a nation scale, the class structure there is, you know, empires at the top. And like Japan wanted to get into that empire game, yes. basically. Now, the UK was particularly invested, um, UK meaning like the British Empire, because um, Hong Kong, India, and other colonies are in the East. And if the Box Rebellion were to succeed, that could give those other places some ideas. <laughs> now, to bring this all back, Sax Romer is part of a long literary tradition that, kind of like an Ouroboros, loops in on itself when it comes to, particularly in this case, um, yellow peril tropes, depictions, and themes. Um, he used travelogues from the American writer named Bayard Taylor. And he um, Taylor's series of travelogues are racist as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to put it mildly. There's no other way to put it. Um, so we'll just look at his book about China and Japan, where he described the culture as one of barbarians and then using physiognomy to scientifically explain their barbarism and unemotional cruelty if you know what phrenology is phrenology was a pseudoscience in victorian times where it was believed that like if you measured the dimensions of someone's skull you could tell things about the brain inside that skull and thus things about the person so you we've know, seen some of that in some horror movies yeah exactly and so you know just as a brief reminder it was like the idea that like oh your skull is shaped like this you have criminal tendencies physiognomy was the idea that you could do that with faces to tell what people were like and that you didn't even need to me well depending on what style of physiognomy you did um in this case taylor's style you didn't need to even measure it you could just like kind of get a sense by looking at people. Yes. Yeah. I keep going like my impulse is to use examples that he would have used to right. explain, but I don't want to perpetuate those ideas 
or those stereotypes. So I, I hesitate to even like mention some of these things, yeah. but I think you can kind of get the idea. So when your source book on another culture describes it as containing, quote, depravity so shocking and horrible that their character cannot even be hinted, end quote, you're going to have a bad time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I can't even put Romer's depiction of Fu Manchu and Asian culture just at Taylor's feet. Fu Manchu's behavior and physical description are actually similar to characters in an 1898 novel from author M.P. Scheel titled, and this is a long one, The Yellow Danger, or What Might Happen If the Division of the Chinese Should Estrange All European Countries. Right. Um, and M.P. Scheel is actually a big influence on Vomer. So if these cultural fears are all over the Western world and its media... Why do we remember Fu Manchu over all of the others? Right? Why yeah. why why him? Right. So I think to kind of do that, um, I'm gonna bring us to Sex Vomer. Okay. Like I said before, Sex Vomer was born in 1883 as Arthur Henry Sarsfield Ward. He was born in England to working class Irish parents. His father, William, worked as a clerk, and so he knew that reading and writing was important for his son's future. To that end, they encouraged Ward's interest in reading about ancient Egypt and the Middle East and the mystic cultures in the East. Now, Ward did try his hand at a clerk trying to follow in his father's footsteps, um, but it didn't work out. So then he thought, okay, I'll be a journalist. He started also writing poetry and then songs and then eventually comedic skits for music halls. His interest in the occult only grew and he eventually joined the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Oh, those guys. Yeah. He was also like trying to get in with the Masons and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, usual things for <laughs> people at this time. Yeah. Is Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn Crowley's one? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Cool, 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 cool. Pretty sure. <laughs> that was his, like, Crowley couldn't get into the Masons, so he made his own weird secret <laughs> yeah. society with blackjack and hookers. Oh. So Ward's work at Music Halls developed his pen name, Sax Romer. And he began publishing fiction under that name as well. He published his first short story in 1903, titled The Mysterious Mummy. All right. Tracks. Cool. And while we've already identified the MP Shield influence, another major influence was Arthur Conan Doyle. You know, the most like successful fiction writer at that time. So fair. In fact, much of Romer's career would have similar parallels to Doyle's. Romer would have short stories here and there, but his big claim to fame was with the 1913 novel, The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu which was serialized and then collected. In it, heroes Dennis Nayland Smith and Dr. Petrie face off against the cruel genius of Dr. Fu Manchu, a member of the organization known as Sifan, a Chinese Tong, or gang. As the novels go on, we learn a bit more about Fu Manchu, and specifically that he left China after the Boxer Rebellion failed. And his goal is ultimately to see China restored to its former glory. Now, these early pulp novels were hugely popular with a lot of interest in the mysterious villain. 
Around 1917, Romer grew very tired of having to write Fu Manchu, and he tried to kill him off several times, only to reluctantly agree to bring him back every time. Hmm. Now, these Fu Manchu novels have kind of two periods. The first period, which is 1913 to 17, which is considered the early period, and then the later period, which starts up in 1931, when he started writing Fu Manchu novels again. We'll talk about why. Uh, spoiler alert, it's because of a movie tie-in. <laughs> but in this 1931 series that runs until 1959, Fu Manchu now leads Sifon, and it has become an international criminal organization. Um, in addition to restoring China's glory, he also wants to take over the world. Yeah, he's much more like James Bond supervillain level. Yes. And he fights fascism and communism equally because only he should rule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Further, um, he's extended his lifespan through a secret elixir that he developed. I don't know. Yeah, also true. <laughs> so why do we remember Fu Manchu? Is it the mustache? <laughs> well, probably a bit. Part of why we remember him is because he has a very iconic appearance. Um, I did mention how, you know, it's kind of riffed off of this earlier thing, but Fu Manchu really solidifies it as his look in the public consciousness. Yeah, it's like it started as like, this is the racist caricature of an evil Asian guy. And then it just like became, this is what Fu Manchu looks like. Yeah. Which, you know, branding. Right. So he has a Mandarin hairstyle, which if you've seen movies depicting like, imperial china is kind of the shaved head with hair around the ears and like the back of the head pulled into a long braid um he has uh almost like spock eyebrows um but they're very long um a uh thin wispy mustache and goatee that uh you know some depictions kind of show it as like longer than others if you have seen kill bill the martial artist who trains the bride. I may. Yeah. He, he's wearing a Fu Manchu style look with the eyebrows and the goatee and everything. But um, for Fu Manchu, it's black, not white hair. Yeah. It's, it's almost hard to describe his mustache because of the fact that we now call that a Fu Manchu mustache. Exactly. Like- <laughs> he is always shown as being, if not cruel, then being shifty. Sure. Um, and I want to emphasize that it's because he is like having an expression of that, not just um, because of the uh, hooded eyes of an Asian person, mm-hmm. um, which was a stereotype of the time of they are inherently yada yada. Um, he has like long fingers with nails that have sharpened points. Um, and he's very like tall and leith and... Um, dangerous yeah and he wears like stereotypical like asian like robes and stuff yes lots of dragon designs on his stuff um well often uh kind of be shown with like this side of pointed teeth right you know not necessarily he's not a vampire but like he's an evil person so clearly he must have pointed teeth right now if any of that kind of sounded familiar uh it's because this look is huge in pop culture you see it in 
the Mandarin uh, in like Marvel Comics. You also see it in the villain in Flash Gordon. Yeah, Ming the Merciless. You see it in like Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat. Like think of an Asian villain in a thing and they've probably got like a bit of a Fu Manchu thing going on. Even um, like the basic setup, right? Of like, an intelligent criminal mastermind who runs like a, uh, an organization of, you know, shadowy villains trying to take over the world. And he's like from the East and he has like mystical, mysterious, scientific, all kinds of know-how and he evades death and is like immortal because he has access to like this magic liquid. And he has this like daughter who's like always trying to kind of like seduce the hero. And she's kind of like sexy cause she's like foreign and exotic, but she's also evil cause she's his daughter. Like Rachel Ghoul is a Fu Manchu, right? Yeah. Like this archetype got used everywhere. Yes. Yep. And I think to also really fully answer the question of like, well, why do we remember Fu Manchu is to answer with another question. Why do we remember Moriarty? Mm. You can see a ton of parallels of Moriarty and Fu Manchu of he's a big genius. He's um, diabolical and cruel and wants to take over the world. And like, you know, they're both like academics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they're both scientists, right? Men of science, intelligent. Exactly. Um, now, the Sherlock Holmes to Fu Manchu is Dennis Nayland Smith, decidedly not as popular as the Doyle counterpart. Nayland Smith begins as a police commissioner in the in- Indian Imperial Police, based in Burma, which is now Myanmar. Maybe he met Alfred while Alfred was serving in Burma. Oh, God. Just so it's clear, Nayland Smith is white and serving in colonial police forces yeah for britain for britain yeah if you couldn't tell the guy named dennis nayland smith is is english i just want to make sure that things are very clear yeah about the no no for context sure and things that this novel is engaging in yeah um now in the revived series this second half beginning in the 1930s nayland smith has been knighted and he briefly worked at Scotland Yard, and eventually he goes to work at MI6. Now, the revival novel, like I said, was published in 1931, and it's titled The Daughter of Fu Manchu. And it introduces the character Fa Lo Sui. This novel was designed to be a revival to tie in with the Paramount adaptation happening at the same time. Um, However, many novels have been adapted, uh, particularly into radio, and the story is kind of getting a life of their own um, with like original characters like Sumeru, a female supervillain. Now, the final success that Romer saw was in the BBC adaptations of these novels happening in the late 40s. And while Romer's work was celebrated and widely read, he still faced criticism at the time for its depictions, tropes, and characterization of Asian people. Okay, fun fact, his work was banned in Nazi Germany, which uh, he was confused about. He said, quote, my stories are not inimical to Nazi ideals. Yeah, he was like, they're racists. I don't get it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 
In total, he would publish a total. Was it because Fu Manchu was smarter than Hitler? It's probably because Fu Manchu was like, fuck fascists. Yeah. In total, Sex Romer wrote 42 novels, nine collections, four plays, and three pieces of nonfiction. And he died in 1959, age 76, from an outbreak of Asian flu. My God. Yes. I think the thing to really look at with Fu Manchu and to keep in mind about him and his whole deal media like empire. When we talk about Fu Manchu versus like Sherlock Holmes, the big innovation of Professor Moriarty as a character was like the creation of the idea of like the supervillain who like matches or is even better than the hero, right? But when you actually read Sherlock Holmes, Moriarty's in one and a half stories. Yeah, he's barely there. He was introduced for one purpose, which was to kill off Sherlock Holmes, to be a villain worthy enough to kill off Sherlock Holmes. And when Doyle's loyal readers uh, demanded he start writing those stories again, they didn't demand more Moriarty. They demanded more Sherlock Holmes. Fu Manchu is, you know, owes a debt to Moriarty because he is a supervillain, which is like an archetype Moriarty invented. But when Sex Romer's readers wanted more stories, they didn't ask for more Dennis Nayland Smith. They asked for more Fu Manchu specifically, right? Yeah. Like he could have had any number of villains face off against Nayland Smith, but nobody... He actually tried. Right, but nobody remembers that series as the Nayland Smith series. People remember it as the Fu Manchu series. And so like, I think a big part of Fu Manchu's legacy is not just in being a supervillain, but in being like the first time that like the villain was more popular than the hero. And so for all of the like racism that Fu Manchu embodies, his popularity as a character speaks to the fact that on some level, I think people thought he was cool. Like there's a double-edged sword here where like he embodies this horrible racist idea about Chinese people. But the reason why people copy him for all these other villains and why people kept wanting to make movies and TV shows and, and comics and books about him and stuff didn't have to do with the fact that like people just had like a real hard on for like racism They had to do with like on a certain level, people were like, this guy's dope, actually. And like, you know, so that's why you have all these characters based on him. And it's why like the further away you get from him in time, why like those characters start showing up, but as other ethnicities and stuff, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Romer tried (laughs) after publishing Daughter of Fu Manchu, which you could even interpret that as him being like, fuck, I don't want to write about the doctor anymore. I'll introduce the daughter so I can maybe get, I can write about her instead. Right. Just getting so tired of the character. After that novel, he published another one uh, that follows the same plot beats and um, character sketches as what's in Fu Manchu, but it's with uh, a dragon lady type villain and um, a different like British archaeologist or some shit. Sure. Um, 
same kind of thing of like she's a super villain and got to face off against her uh but that didn't get picked up yeah nobody because cared. they just wanted more Fu Manchu yeah and I think like you know the other part of that character's evolution that I think you're about to talk a lot more about is like in that second set of the series you know you talked about how he goes from being like a member of this organization to being like the leader and he gets this like sexy daughter and like all these things and it's like yeah he goes from being just like some hoodlum like just some like member of the organization who is formidable but it's formidable in the way that like jaws is to james bond right or odd job is to james bond but he's not he's but- not blofeld and and the thing is is in terms of tone like the earlier novels where he's not an international supervillain he's just kind of like a moriarty type are like a lot more like i mean they're all adventure novels so this is a word i'm going to use loosely but like they're a lot more like serious in tone yeah the later ones get more um <laughs> i'll say cartoonish and they're also more popular <laughs> yeah it's it's like like Sean Connery, James Bond versus like Roger Moore, James Bond. Sure. That's actually really great. Yeah. That's a really good, good comparison here. So you said this like second period started in 1931 with daughter of Fu Manchu. Yes. Uh, the novel that was adapted in the film that we are watching today is called The Mask of Fu Manchu. And it was the second of this revived series. So published in 1932. It features a prominent archaeologist named Sir Lionel Barton. As he's in Egypt and he discovers the tomb of El Mokana, also known as uh, the Veiled Prophet. Now, Barton takes the relics and the tomb explodes. I couldn't find detailed synopses on this beyond like some teasing of what happens. But in some, it implied that Barton himself explodes the tomb. Um, Listen, you raid a tomb and then you leave and it blows up behind you. This is just standard adventure story stuff. For sure. How yeah. how dare I question the order of events and intent behind the explosions? Yeah, of course. It's a like, you know, he took relics out and they were load-bearing relics. <laughs> a nearby heretic sect following Mokana's teachings see the explosion as a sign of the prophet's second coming. So in the meantime, as this uh, sect is starting to like rise up and cause trouble for like the local authorities, um, Fu Manchu is going after our archaeologist because he wants those relics and will stop at nothing to get them, including chasing Barton across Egypt, Persia, and England. That's all I know. (laughs) Okay, so that's like the basic setup. Yeah, the novel is in the public domain though so if you want to read it you can go do so without having to pay money yeah i think like when you talk about you know egypt and persia and and these things it's important to note that like so whiteness is a fake idea like the idea of like white identity right Mm -hmm. like that that white identity is a thing is like a fake idea that was invented in like you know the colonial period in order to further that like us versus them idea, right? Because before it was like us Brits against those French. Right, exactly. Like, you know, if you go back to like medieval times, like nobody talks about 
white people. Nobody knows what the fuck you're talking about. It, you know, if, if there's any like us versus them in terms of a Europe versus other people, it's like the nations of Christendom mm-hmm. versus other things. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean like, yeah, we did have the crusades, but again, yeah, that was based in like, it, we're Christians, they're Muslim. Right. It's, it's Christians versus heathens, not like whites versus blacks. Like racism was an idea that, you know, needed to justify different things than like the religious wars justified. And if you are starting to, if you want to other people in a monolithic way, you kind of have to develop an identity for yourself. That's like monolithic basically. Sure. Um, because if you're going to do an us versus them, you need an us. So that's like where the idea of like white people as like a identity comes from, because like, that's not a thing. Similarly, like, the way that Sax Romer and other like yellow peril people talk about Asians is very monolithic. monolithic. So like, whereas if I say the word Asian, I would guess the average listener is going to think about like Chinese people or Korean people or Japanese people or Mongolian people or Vietnamese people, like, like East Asians, Asian to Sax Romer means like, everyone east of europe right it means it could even be as far west as morocco yeah which is like just south of like france basically yeah it's 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 east west doesn't actually have any meanings right but like the definition of asian here is the chinese it's the japanese it's all the people you think of as like east asian but it's also indian people and it's also arab people and egyptian people and and you know persians and all this stuff and iranians right which uh i forget when iran is created but it's persia yeah 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 Yeah. they're they're synonymous yeah um some people might not know that i didn't know that until i read persepolis what i'm trying to get across here yes 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 is that while a modern person, I think, can understand the idea of, like, calling everyone who lives on the Asian continent Asian, even though it's not maybe what you think of when you think, like, you don't typically, I think, think of Indian people as Asians, but, you know, you, it can make sense. It's like, oh, they're all on the Asian continent. That's not what these writers at that time meant when they saw that as monolithic. They saw them as monolithically Asian in the way that the West was monolithically white. So if Western civilization was one power group, Eastern civilization was another. So in the idea of these writers like Sax Romer, the idea was that like, you know, if Fu Manchu rules the East, he doesn't just rule Chinese people. He's ruling like Egyptians and Arabs and all these other kinds of people. And they are all united in their battle against the West. Like they are a monolithic thing, which is of course not even the beginning of true, right? But it's like something to say to just like, understand when you read these books like like egyptian culture is getting like sort of lumped in lumped in with chinese stuff it's because like it's all asian to sex romer absolutely we kind of touched on this already a bit but fu manchu being quite popular had already been in several motion pictures by the time of mask of fu manchu to this day with one like asterisk exception no actually asian actor has ever played fu manchu what's the asterisk so recently tony lung played a character in shang chi and the ten rings 
mm. who is um I forget the character's name in that movie because it was developed for the film. He is an amalgamation of two different Marvel Comics characters. He is both the Mandarin from Iron Man Comics, and he is also Shang-Chi's father, who in Marvel Comics is Fu Manchu, because Fu Manchu is a public domain character. Yeah. And in adapting that character for the, like, 21st century and, like, a modern international worldwide blockbuster movie, Marvel decided to basically merge the Mandarin, who's a Fu Manchu ripoff anyway, with Fu Manchu, and then have it be a different new character who has like a different backstory and is like rewritten to be, you know, more three-dimensional. So in that sense, Tony Lung plays Fu Manchu, um, but it's not really the same character anymore. So that's the asterisk. Like in terms of people playing Fu Manchu, it's always been white folk. And so that starts with Harry Agar Lyons, who played the character in two British silent serials, The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu in 1923 and the creatively named The Further Mysteries of Dr. Fu Manchu in 1924. Sure. That means that that movie came out 10 years after the book of the same name. Yeah. And during that like lull period where there weren't any books coming out. The first American feature film was The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu in 1929, an early talkie from Paramount. It starred Swedish actor Warner Oland as Fu Manchu in Yellowface, as well as starring future Commissioner Gordon Neil Hamilton as Dr. Petrie and O.P. Hedgie as Inspector Dennis Nayland Smith. That film was directed and produced by Roland V. Lee. Oh. Who went on to do stuff like Son of Frankenstein. The film was a success, and so it was followed by a sequel in 1930, The Return of Fu Manchu, with the same cast and same director. A final film in the trilogy was made in 1931, Daughter of the Dragon, which is legally distinct from the novel The Daughter of Fu Manchu. That novel came out, but that was, as you said, the first new novel after this big gap, right? Paramount had motion picture rights to the original series. Their deal didn't cover any new novels. Mm. So the movies from Paramount were very successful. So because of that success, Sax Romer was like, I guess it's time to jump on the novel train again and try to like capitalize on this success. And then Paramount tried to capitalize on the success of his new novel which they couldn't actually adapt. So they came up with a similar legally distinct storyline for Daughter of the Dragon, which starred famous Chinese-American actress Anna Mae Wong as Fu Manchu's daughter, who is not Follow Sui in this, but a different character. Um, That film also did not include Dr. Petrie or Nayland Smith. And she actually is like the main character of the movie. Hmm. Um, But thanks to racism, Anna Mae Wong was paid less than Warner Oland as Fu Manchu, who has less screen time than her. That film also featured Japanese actor Sasue Hayakawa, uh, who was extremely popular at that time, as the main heroic role because he needs to fall in love with Fu Manchu's daughter and we can't have like mixed race relationships, which yeah. is why we have a new hero. That film was directed by Lloyd Corrigan. After that film, Paramount's option 
on Fu Manchu expired. They had the rights to make like three movies, basically. And so Warner Oland moved on uh, pretty much immediately afterwards, starting in 1931, to playing the role of Charlie Chan, the Mm. famous uh, Chinese detective, in a series of 16 films for Fox from 1931 to 1937. I'm just pumping those things out. Oh, yeah. And they were like extremely popular to the point that like every other studio for a while had their own like knockoff Chinese or Japanese detective series. So Warner Ellen just kind of like made a career out of yellow face. Basically it is worth stating that the character of Charlie Chan was originally created um, by the author of the original Charlie Chan novel as explicitly a positive alternative to Fu Manchu. Um, the, the author did not like yellow peril stereotypes and wanted to present like a positive view of an Asian character. Oh, it's something. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things where like, you know, for the time this was good and progressive and by today's standards is still racist. Yeah. Um, so once Paramount's option had expired, the rights to Romer's next book, The Mask of Fu Manchu, were greedily snapped up by Metro Goldwyn Mayer. MGM at this time was consolidating their reputation as the home of prestige motion pictures. But the one-two punch of Dracula and Frankenstein in 1931 had taken the movie world by storm. Those movies made millions of dollars in 1931 when, like... No one had money. No one had money. (laughs) Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde followed shortly thereafter from Paramount... So MGM initially countered the trend with freaks from the studio's own Todd Browning. But they got more than they bargained for with that movie and less than they hoped for in terms of money. So with freaks kind of having been a bit of a mixed bag at best, MGM was like, well, we tried. Except that the horror trend didn't cease. It didn't die. Soon there was Murders in the Room Morgue from Universal, White Zombie from United Artists, and Dr. X from Warner Brothers. The public seemed to have an appetite for the grotesque and horrific in the early 1930s. So studio bosses Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg decided to try again. And to this time, like, just go for broke in testing the audience's tolerance for violence, sex, torture, decadence, and xenophobia. With... The Mask of Fu Manchu. Ah, now I see why it's lumped in with horror movies. Mm. While MGM uh, distributed the film and supervised its production, the actual, like, production of the movie, you know, on the ground, was handled by a production company called Cosmopolitan Pictures, which was the movie-making arm of the William Randolph Hearst Media Empire. (laughs) Uh, It was named after the magazine, Cosmopolitan, which Hearst owned, and it primarily existed to make Marion Davies movies. So... Rosebud. (laughs) So, to briefly tangent, William Randolph Hearst was a media mogul in the first half of the 20th century. Think like Rupert Murdoch of the first half of the 20th century. He's the basis for Citizen Kane, uh, Charles Foster Kane, no matter what, like, Orson Welles' various lawyers at any given time would like to tell you. And so he owned, like, just a shit ton of newspapers. And he was one of the first 
journalists or like newspaper owners to be accused of what is now known as like yellow journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, him and Pulitzer actually, um, which I think it's hilarious that like the top prize for journalism is the Pulitzer prize when like Pulitzer was like known for just being like, you know, a yellow journalist, like a terrible, terrible, uh, anyways, they're not called, <laughs> even though, even though hers did promote the yellow peril idea, like was definitely invested in, you know, stirring up anti-Asian sentiment, uh, big racist, that guy. Um, he wasn't called a yellow journalist because of that. It actually had to more to do with the fact that a popular comic strip called the yellow kid, um, bounced from one from like Pulitzer's newspaper to Hearst's. But regardless, Hearst, um, married a comedic actress by the name of Marion Davies, who Hearst was convinced should be a popular and serious, serious dramatic actress who wins all the awards. So he basically started his own movie company to make movies to put her into, um, because no one would put her into the kind of movies he insisted she should be in. So this is like his vanity movie studio. Is she in this? No. Okay. So it's important to understand that because like as a major supporter of anti-Asian sentiment, Hearst had no issue with bankrolling the production of a Fu Manchu movie. To demonstrate that they meant business this time when it came to competing with the, uh, to them, inexplicable horror trend, MGM arranged to borrow Boris Karloff from Universal for the lead role in this picture. This was something of an audacious move at the time because Karloff had only been in two horror movies to date. Frankenstein and the old dark house Mm. in which like both of those movies, he's basically inarticulate. Like he just grunts and moans. Right. And at the time that he was cast in Fu Manchu, old dark house was only in previews. So really just on the power of Frankenstein. Exactly. Now this is interesting because I think it points out just how badly Bella Lugosi's career was already fucked by the uh, less than stellar release of Murders in the Rue Morgue in February and the difficulties around the production of that movie. Because otherwise you would think it would be more of a natural move for MGM to consider the guy who played Dracula for the role of Fu Manchu, you know, a charming Eastern mysterious villain with lots of dialogue right and also like vaguely ethnic because certainly the idea in hollywood you know at that time was like one non-white ethnicity is as good as another well yeah look at the swedish guy right so instead lugosi ended up playing the egyptian character roxor in the low budget movie shandu the magician which if you want to know what that movie's deal is it's basically like low budget 1930s doctor strange okay and roxor is basically just low budget fu manchu um (laughs) and that movie's from from fox so that was like fox's attempt to like cash in on this movie basically wow so Karloff's casting represented one of the earliest efforts to cash in on his sudden unexpected stardom because the other movies he had appeared in in 1932 up to this point were all like small character parts that were more evocative of his like pre-Frankenstein image, such as his role in Scarface. Although it's worth pointing out that that film had shot before Frankenstein and didn't release until after due to censorship concerns. 
so yeah, like this is the first time people are like casting Karloff on purpose to cash in on the idea of Karloff as a horror star. Absolutely. Cast in the role of Fu Manchu's sadosexual daughter, Fa Lo Si, the pronunciation was simplified for this movie, was an actress who at the time was famous for playing exactly these kind of roles, um, ethnic femme fatales. Um, but today she is famous for an entirely different kind of character. Born Myrna Williams in Montana in 1905, she moved with her family to California at age seven after her mother nearly died of pneumonia. Myrna took up dance lessons and made her stage debut at age 12. The next year, her father died in the flu pandemic of 1918. In 1921, at age 16, uh, she posed for the sculpture teacher of her school, Venice High School, and became the model for the Inspiration statue, which was installed outdoors on the school grounds and became quite famous because it's a statue like on the grounds of a L.A. public school. Age 18, she began working at Grauman's Egyptian Theater, uh, dancing like as a chorus girl in these like shows that Grauman's would have between movies, like little oh. interstitial, like kind of vaudeville dance things. <laughs> Interesting. Because we're still in like a weird period where music like, hall and theater are still are yeah, connected. Streams. Yeah. yeah. While working there, she was spotted by a photographer who took some photos of her. And then that photographer showed those photos to his friend, movie star Rudolph Valentino, which led to Valentino asking Myrna to audition for the lead romantic role in his new movie. She didn't get it, but she was cast as an extra in that movie, and then in small roles after that, as her beauty led to her getting a contract with Warner Brothers, who changed her name from Myrna Williams to Myrna Loy. Oh, I know her from the Thin Man Correct. series. Correct. Yes. Myrna Loy quickly became typecast as someone with exotic looks. So she was typically cast as femme fatales, Asian characters, or Asian femme fatales. So Follow is basically like the epitome of the early phase of her career. Sure. Um, and if it's not clear, she is doing yellow face here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. After this movie, she tried to like change up her image because like, where are you going to go from here really with the whole Asian femme fatale thing? Um, so she tried to make a go of it in musicals since she was trained as a singer and dancer. But by 1934, this had worked against her because the public taste for musicals had soured. The big turning point in her career was when director W.S. Van Dyke met her at a Hollywood party and was impressed with her wit and charm, which he felt had not come across in her previous roles. So he cast her as Nora Charles in The Thin Man, which became one of the biggest hits of the year and was nominated for Best Picture. Loy appeared in a number of Thin Man sequels and also found that her image was completely changed by that role. Now she was the quintessential wife, the woman who showed that marriage could be fun and sexy and wives could be partners to their husbands. Thin Man is a great movie. People should go watch it. Yes. <laughs> so Loy became a star for MGM although she chafed at the studio's segregated casting and lack of opportunities for black actors. She kind of regularly called them out on it, called them out on it and complained about it. Yeah. Once she said like, Hey, why do 
black actors always have to be like chauffeurs and footmen and servants. Like, why can't you have like a black guy walking up the steps of a courthouse carrying a briefcase every now and then? You know, so like even in just how you cast extras, Mm -hmm. right? Loy left acting during World War II to work for the Red Cross and speak out against Hitler and raise money for the war. After the war, she appeared as Frederick March's wife in The Best Years of Our Lives, which won Best Picture in 1946. So another like quintessential wife kind of role. In the 1950s, she was the co-chairman of the Advisory Council of the National Committee Against Discrimination in Housing. In 1975, she underwent two mastectomies for breast cancer. And in 1991, she received a Lifetime Achievement Academy Award, and she passed away in 1993 at age 88. That's a really good long run. Yeah, she's a cool lady. Yeah. Playing Fu Manchu's nemesis, Inspector Dennis Nayland Smith, I always like saying the full name because it's ridiculous. <laughs> it really is. Um, is actor Lewis Stone, who was 53 years old at the time. <laughs> Will we hear him creaking across the screen like Roger Moore? Born in 1879 in Massachusetts, Stone served in the U.S. Army during the Spanish-American War of 1898. Oh my god, he's so old! (laughs) Which was also a pet project of William Randolph Hearst. Stone's acting career led to him becoming known as one of the most popular leading men of the American stage by 1913. He left the stage to fight again in World War I, rising to the rank of major. After the war, he made his feature film debut and remained a top star in movies, playing the title role in The Prisoner of Zenda in 1922. In 1924, he signed with MGM, where he would stay under contract until his death in 1953. He still to this day holds the record as like the longest contracted star with any one studio. Wow. And he'll probably keep that because they're because they don't do contracts. contracts like that anymore. No. Yeah. In 1925, he got some early adventure movie experience when he appeared in The Lost World. He was nominated for an Oscar for his role in The Patriot in 1929. And in the early 30s, he became known for his collaborations with Greta Garbo, such as in 1932's Grand Hotel. In 1937, he began playing Judge James Hardy in the long-running Andy Hardy series starring Mickey Rooney. Mm. During World War II, he served as a lieutenant colonel. He passed away in 1953 of a heart attack. Three wars. Mm Mm-hmm. Part of why I'm balking at this is probably because in the regular program for Scream Scene, we're in 1958. Yes. So. 1879 just feels like dust. Yeah. Oof. The part of um, good girl, Sheila Barton, is played by actress Karen Morley. She was born Mildred Linton in 1909 in Iowa, but she moved to Hollywood at age 13. She dropped out of the University of California to join the Pasadena Playhouse. She got a contract with MGM, who changed her name to Karen Morley, and she began appearing in films starting in 1929. In 1932, she played Poppy, the obsession of the lead character in Scarface. That's cool. Scarface is also a really good movie. Yeah. Yeah. If you only know the like 80s Al Pacino one, like hunt down the 30s one. It's real good. Morley left MGM in 1934 
uh, which would lead to like a decline in her career as like a freelance actress. In 1947, she testified before HUAC and refused to answer questions regarding her ties to communism. She was blacklisted, um, but continued her political activities, running for lieutenant governor of New York in 1954 on an American Labor Party ticket. Good for her. In a 1993 documentary, she described the basis of like her leaving MGM and kind of becoming like a communist activist as coming from how helpless she felt as a privileged Hollywood actress during the Great Depression when like there was poverty and suffering all around her and she was living in luxury and really couldn't like do anything about it. Mm -hmm. She passed away in 2003 at age 93. Another good long run. Now, Karen Morley, you know, appearing in this film, she would be in her 20s. So with that in mind, um, the heroic lead of this film, her like romantic interest is played by actor Charles Starrett, who was born in Massachusetts in 1903 and studied at Dartmouth College, where he played on the football team, which led to him being cast as an extra in the movie The Quarterback in 1926, which led to him kind of like catching the acting bug. So he had his first romantic lead role in 1930 in the film Fast and Loose, starring Miriam Hopkins. She's the one who's fast and Yes. Loose. Correct. <laughs> so as the like young hero in this movie, um, Starrett gets subjected to like torture by the character of Fa Lo Si. And one of the big um, controversies in this movie upon its release is the fact that it is very clear that Fa Lo is really turned on by watching him get tortured. Apparently, reverse was also a problem during shooting because during those scenes um starts like wearing like a loincloth and they had to keep like cutting and doing new takes because starts <laughs> like enthusiasm shooting scenes with Myrna Loy was a little too visible on camera <laughs> listen Myrna Loy's really hot she's really hot this is <laughs> Very funny. Starrett's career shifted in 1935 when he signed to Columbia Pictures, who wanted him to be a cowboy hero for their westerns. And so he began appearing in a long series of quickly churned out nearly identical movies, most famously in the role of the Durango Kid from 1940 to 1952. Damn. So, you know, he was playing the Durango Kid when he was 50. Having invested his money wisely, Starrett retired from acting at age 48 and spent the rest of his life traveling the world with his wife. One last notable name in the cast is Danish actor Jean Herschelt, who was born Jean Baron, Jean Baran, <laughs> one of those two, Jean Baran in Denmark in 1886. As an actor in Denmark, he became embroiled in a scandal which saw several prominent men outed as homosexuals, including Jean, who pled guilty to prostitution. He was sentenced to eight months in prison, and when he got out, his career as an actor in Denmark was over, so he moved to the United States, now under the name Jean Herschelt, and he married Via Anderson in 1914, with whom he had two sons. 
He appeared in movies for the next 40 years, uh, with some of his most notable roles, including Marcus in Eric von Stroheim's Greed from 1924, Baron Otto in 1935's Mark of the Vampire, and Heidi's grandfather in the 1937 version of Heidi starring Shirley Temple. But his most famous role was as the character of small-town doctor Paul Christian, whom Herschelt created himself and whom he played on the radio from 1937 to 1954, in six films from 1939 to 1941, and on television starting in 1956. Wow. In 1939, Herschelt helped create the Motion Picture Relief Fund, designed to help support film industry workers with their medical care. Herschel passed away in 1956 of cancer, and after his death, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences named the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award in his honor. Oh, that's nice. So, Mask of Fu Manchu went into production in early August of 1932, August 6th, I believe, with a script by Courtney Terrett and directed by Charles Vidor, a Hungarian director who had attracted attention with his self-financed short film The Bridge in 1929. But he had never worked on a production of this magnitude, uh, which was budgeted at nearly $330,000, uh, which would be like $8 million today. Yeah. Bedore went on after this to become the top director at Columbia Pictures, best remembered for films such as A Song to Remember in 1945, Gilda in 1946, and A Farewell to Arms in 1957. During the production of this film, he began an affair with Karen Morley, and they would actually get married in November of 1932, around the time this movie was released. Um, but they divorced in 1943. <laughs> Now, production on Fu Manchu was rushed and chaotic. As I mentioned, Vidor was not used to directing, like, a film of this magnitude. And a week before shooting, Karloff asked for a script. And uh, they, like, he was laughed at, at the idea that there would, like, be a script. You're kidding. No. Um, while undergoing the two-and-a-half-hour makeup process for Fu Manchu on the first day of shooting, Karloff was finally handed some script pages for his first scene, seeing them for the first time. Uh, he objected to, like, doing this scene, like, and having to learn his lines while he was in the makeup chair. A PA told him not to worry about it. On his way from makeup to the set, uh, another PA intercepted him and replaced the pages that he had with different ones, with different dialogue. <laughs> the project would quickly become known around Hollywood as the mess of Fu Manchu. Sure. On the third day of production, on the third day of filming, on the third day of production, filming ceased, and Courtney Terrett was replaced with writer Raoul Whitfield, a pulp adventure crime writer for Black Mask magazine, who wrote in the hard-boiled style. Filming resumed three days later, but two days after that, MGM brought in director Charles Brabin to work with Vidor. Born in Liverpool in 1882, Brabin emigrated to New York around the turn of the century, getting work as a stage actor before hiring on with the Thomas Edison Film Company, uh, where he moved up the ladder to the position of director. 
Brabin was the original director of MGM's Ben-Hur in 1923, but he was replaced by Fred Niblo, who was the sole credited director when that film was finally released in 1925. Brabin's final film for MGM was in 1934. He was the husband of the original vamp, Theta Berra. Uh, he married her in 1921, and they stayed married until her death in 1955. He passed away in 1957. Four days after Brabin was brought on, Vidor was fired, and Bayard Valor was brought on the movie to rewrite the script. Ultimately, Valor's script was tossed out and replaced with another <laughs> script, which was ultimately credited to the film's three credited writers, Irene Kuhn, Edgar Allan Wolfe, and John Willard. Do you know why the scripts were thrown out? It just, like, wasn't hitting the beats? I no assume idea. nobody was happy with them. Yeah, okay. Okay, cool. Irene Kuhn was a Hearst columnist, and oh, she was no. brought on to write on the script to ensure that her boss's message came through in the picture. <laughs> Edgar Allan Wolfe was a contract writer for MGM. He kind of just like was a, you know, pinch hitter. Um, he's best remembered today as one of the writers of The Wizard of Oz. Oh, sorry. Troubled production. Mm -hmm. And John Willard was a playwright uh, who was best known for writing the stage play The Cat and the Canary. Oh. Edgar Allan Wolfe was also gay, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> So with the director and script situation somewhat settled, uh, the film continued shooting until October 21st, 1932. That's a long, that's like two full months. Yes. Wow. Which is not normal. No. Even for a big production at this time. Yeah. That's because this was a fucking mess. <laughs> Cinematography for the film was by Tony Gaudio. Uh, who began his career in Italy shooting short films before coming to America in 1906. He's best known as the first cinematographer to include a montage sequence in a film. And some of his most notable titles include Hell's Angels from 1930, oh. Little Caesar from 1931, The Front Page from 1931, Anthony Adverse in 1936, for which he won the Best Cinematography Oscar, the Adventures of Robin Hood in 1938, High Sierra in 1941, and he worked as a cinematographer until his death in 1951 at age 67. Wow, this is some big titles. Mm -hmm. Production design for this film was quite elaborate. It's a big part of that high budget I mentioned earlier. For sure. Um, this film's look is a mix between Orientalist, Art Deco, and futurism. The sets are like extremely elaborate. They were designed by Cedric Gibbons. In one scene, there's a bunch of like giant gold statues that like were purposely kind of designed to look like Oscars. <laughs> um, and in addition to all of like the, you know, decadent gold sets, there's a lot of like futuristic uh, science equipment for Fu Manchu's lab, which was provided to the film by Kenneth Strickfaden. Of course. Um, who ended up doubling for Karloff himself in a scene where Fu Manchu has to wave a sword between two Tesla coils. <laughs> the titular mask of the film was based on the design by W.T. Benda for the novel's cover art. Karloff's makeup 
was by Cecil Holland, and it involved filling in the area around his eyes, reshaping his nose, applying tooth caps and fake fingernails, and then his wig as well as fake eyebrows and mustache. During shooting, uh, Myrna Loy and Karloff got along quite well on set in this, their only collaboration. They decided that the best way to play their characters was tongue-in-cheek, basically just to have like a great time chewing the scenery. Apparently, like, multiple takes were required constantly because they would just like, everyone would just like burst out laughing uh, making this movie. Sure. Um, But Loy ultimately was really disappointed with all of the other actors but her and Karloff. She felt that, like, you know, while they were playing the characters tongue-in-cheek, like, she and Karloff were the only people, like, bringing anything to any of these roles. Yeah. Um, You know, they were bringing, like, emotion and humor and, like, kind of, like, dimension to these comic book roles. And in her opinion, like, everyone else in the cast just kind of phoned it in. I can't really blame them in the context of the production, Mm -hmm. but I think it speaks to the talent behind Loy and Karloff. For sure. Because I haven't really heard of any of these other people. (laughs) Fair. The Mask of Fu Manchu was released on November 5th, 1932. It was a mild hit. Wait, okay. So they finished on the 21st 21st of October. So and it took, came out on November 5th. They took two weeks. To edit. Oof. To edit what was probably a, just a fucking, like... Mess. Mess of footage from, like, various different competing scripts, right? Oh. Oh. I hope that person got paid well. <laughs> the film was a mild hit. It grossed nearly $390,000. Okay. So, you know, it made its money back. Upon release, the film was met with protests from the Chinese-American community, Mm. and the Chinese embassy filed a formal complaint with Washington over the depiction of Chinese people in the film, which is considered one of the most virulently anti-Chinese films ever made. Yeah. So I bring that up to point out that, like, at the time this movie was seen as racist. Karloff uh, dismissed criticisms of the film as inciting anti-Chinese sentiment as being utterly ridiculous, um, since he felt that the movie was an escapist adventure picture and clearly not meant to be taken seriously. That's from the point of view of someone who isn't thinking about, like, how does this contribute to the overall cultural themes of the world? Right, like, he's hearing, like, this movie incites anti-Chinese sentiment, and he's going, this is a comic book movie, like, why would anyone... Take this seriously. Yeah, and, like, get upset over this. Karloff would, in fact, perform in Yellowface several more times in his mm-hmm. career, uh, most notably following Warner Olin's lead into the Chinese detective business as Mr. Wong for monogram pictures in the late 30s. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I thought he had a Charlie Chan yeah. knockoff because Peter Laurie did too, right? Yeah, yeah. Mr. Moto. Yeah. yeah. Laurie and Karloff did those movies during that, like, um, horror slump in the late 30s. Mainstream critics of the period attacked this movie, uh, not for the racism, but for the high level of violence and sadosexual themes, which were considered extremely shocking for the time. (laughs) After the implementation of the production code in 1934, the film was heavily edited for re-release to remove the violence, the torture, the cruelty, and the anti-white 
dialogue of some of the Asian characters. Of course, yeah. Interesting that they still allowed it to be released because it itself is a movie stoking anti-Asian. Yeah, and all the anti-Asian dialogue remained. Yeah. And that, that was something that was really interesting about the code when we dug into it was like, they are very like, you know, don't make fun of any race of any kind. Yeah, exactly. In 1972, the Japanese American Citizens League protested the film, uh, stating that it was offensive and demeaning to Asian Americans and asking that it be removed from MGM's catalog, which would basically mean that like, you know, repertory theaters and, and stuff like that shouldn't be able to book it. And like TV stations shouldn't be able to book it from MGM. Um, mm -hmm. Basically that like, you know, it shouldn't be shown anymore. MGM did not comply with this ask, but when the film was released on home video for the first time in the 80s, MGM edited the film to remove uh, racial slurs and sort of the worst of the anti-Asian uh, content. You can't take all of it out because that's just not... The movie. Yeah. Um, but they edited out like follows um, sadosexual reactions to torture, and they edited out um, the most infamous speech in the movie where Fu Manchu calls for the eradication of white men and the enslavement of white women. So those edits were in addition to the violence and sexual content that had been cut out in the thirties. So that like VHS version of Fu Manchu must run like half an hour. I don't fucking know. <laughs> the uncensored version of the film only became available for the first time since its theatrical release in 2006 when it was released on DVD in the Legends of Horror collection alongside Mark of the Vampire, The Devil Doll, Mad Love, Dr. X, and Return of Dr. X. And the film is now available to rent on iTunes, YouTube, and the Microsoft Video Store. Do you know if they have anything on there that's similar to like what Warner Brothers does with Looney Tunes of like, hey, put this into context? I believe there is something on the dvd because the dvd is a warner brothers release oh, and sure. so they're always really good about that i have no idea what the like you know online rental sure. services do uh, if there's anything on those at all so i do really appreciate that warner brothers does that like i think of it specifically with the bugs bunny looney tunes stuff mm -hmm. um because as they said i think they do it for popeye too but anyways they say that you know completely erasing it would be like as if this stuff never happened is like worse than just like acknowledging that it was wrong then and it's wrong now. Yeah. I think a lot of people realize that that was a great way to do it because when I've seen other companies realize that they need to put up similar disclaimers, they're almost always worded very close to that Warner brothers one. And Warner brothers was certainly the first company I saw to really do a good job on disclaimers like that. Yeah, for sure. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, you're welcome to do so using the resources Ben has laid out. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Mask of Fu Manchu from 1932, directed by Charles Braben. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mask of Fu Manchu from 1932, directed by Charles Brabin. First thoughts, Ben? Um, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, we will share our complicated thoughts. I will say uh, that the praise for the film's production design and art direction definitely deserved mm. uh the sets are very complex and praiseworthy but before we do that let's dive into the synopsis mm -hmm. now uh i'll just note that the character dennis nayland smith uh has lost his first name and they treat his name like his full name as first name nayland last name smith mm -hmm. so already we're off on like a rocky start before an adaptation but Sir Nayland Smith of the British Secret Service has recruited the archaeologist Sir Lionel Barton into finding the lost tomb of Genghis Khan in the Gobi Desert, um, specifically to find the tomb before Dr. Fu Manchu does. Um, Barton has come up with a theory of where the tomb is. Nayland Smith heard that he was working on it and has recruited him to do this sooner than later. Now, Fu Manchu is interested in finding the tomb because he wants the mask and sword of Genghis Khan to basically use as symbols to rally the East against the white race. Now, Barton agrees, uh, and he recruits his colleagues Dr. Von Berg and Dr. McLeod to accompany him on this expedition. But pretty much immediately after, Barton is kidnapped before the expedition leaves. His daughter, named Sheila, steps in to lead the expedition instead. She leans in like a girl boss. <laughs> she does then spend the rest of the movie, like, afraid of everything. But we need a girl. Yeah. We need a girl. Yeah. Um, her fiancé, Terrence, also known as Terry, accompanies her and the rest of the expedition. He's our hero. Yes, capital H hero. Now, the film is intercut with this expedition finding the tomb and Fu Manchu torturing Barton with uh, this big bell and basically using like sound to like drive him insane um, because he, he just wants the location of where the tomb is. Meanwhile, our expedition finds the relics and Nayland Smith joins up with them to basically help get the team and the relics out of Mongolia. We see that there are Fu Manchu agents all around them trying to steal the relics at one point, trying to break in, and they end up killing Dr. McLeod in the process. And then we take a minute to have a real Christian trademarked burial, mm -hmm. uh, just to really make it clear that we're Christians and they're heathens. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's important, like, to the movie's, like, thesis yeah. that like our Christianity be demonstrated. Yeah. Now they receive a message in the form of Barton's hand um, that has been cut off and sent, thrown over the wall. And they know it's Barton's hand because it has his like signet ring. And then a representative of Fu Manchu arrives and says to Sheila, you know, if you bring the relics to the doctor, your, your dad will be fine. It'll be fine. And so Terry is in on this plan and ends up going in her place. 
Now, when he gets there, he gives the sword and mask to Dr. Fu Manchu and he takes the mask and he's like, dope. And then he takes the sword, which, by the way, is like a giant fucking sword. And he takes it in between some struck fade and equipment and it promptly melts from the electricity. And he's like, this is a fake. <laughs> so Terry is taken away to be tortured and whipped by Follow C while Burton is returned dead. Nayland Smith goes to try to rescue Terry by basically like going to like the local market and being like, hey, I want opium. And then tracking some people in the opium to where like the secret hideout is and yeah, yada, yeah, yada. yeah, yeah. Um, in any case, he gets caught like immediately. And Fu Manchu kind of gloats to Nayland Smith that like now you can watch as Terry, in between being Follow C's plaything, is going to be injected with my secret recipe of chemical serum that uh, will allow me to control his mind. This is better than hypnosis. What you going Take to take that, Bella Lugosi? <laughs> what you going to do about it, Nayland Smith? This serum, by the way, is made by taking um, some kind of unknown liquid from some tarantulas, from a boa constrictor who is quite fat and clearly had just been recently fed. It's an adorable constrictor. And uh, from a, like, lizard. Uh, anyways, mixes it all together, injects it. Now Terry's under his control, and he is sent back to... Are the rest of our intrepid heroes to get the real sword and mask. Sheila can tell that Terry isn't himself, but she and Dr. Von Berg basically do as he says, packing up to go meet Nayland Smith to take them to Peking, whatever. Um, but on the way, they get captured and brought to Fu Manchu along with the real relics. And as Fu Manchu gloats, um, and follow C also gloats to Sheila because Terry is like her little plaything. Fu Manchu says, you'll all be sacrificed to our gods. He also gives a pretty good speech of like, uh, with these relics, I'll like enslave the Western white race. What he says is that we're going to wipe out the white man and take his women. Yes. Is like the line that people kind of have a lot of trouble with in this movie. However, Sheila professes her love to Terry, like, Terry, you can break out of it. I love you. Don't worry. And it breaks him out of the trance. So as we enter the climax, basically everyone is sent to their own individual torture chamber. Uh, Sheila is sent to go get, like, prepared in a uh, universal standard white gown. Mm -hmm. Nayland Smith is in a pit over alligators and will slowly, like, be dropped in. Von Berg is uh, on a chair between two walls with spikes coming in. And I don't know if this is really torture. Uh, it's more just like experimentation. Terry gets taken back to the table to be like re-administered serum. Yeah, because like Follow C's like hold over him was broken by like Sheila being like, Terry, I love you. Um, so he needs a, you know, a new dose. Yeah. Yeah. He needs his booster shot. Right. Um, so as we go through the climax, Nayland Smith escapes his alligators, gets to Terry, and then they rescue Dr. Von Berg from the spiked walls. Now they can hear some kind of ceremony going on where, you know, the sacrifice of Sheila is going to take place. It turns out it's in like the room below 
our main entry chamber where there happens to be this electrical equipment. So they open up a trap door to be able to see into this like amphitheater and they aim the electrical equipment ray gun. Yeah, the death ray. The death ray down towards Fu Manchu. Um, and just as he is about to sacrifice Sheila and like slice her open with Genghis Khan's sword, um, they shoot the death rays from the gun and it, the electricity is attracted by the sword. So Fu Manchu is electrocuted while Terry runs up and grabs Sheila, also grabs the sword, doesn't get electrocuted and slashes Fu Manchu. So he's presumably dead. Um, and then everyone escapes as the ray gun continues to like shoot electricity at the crowd. Next thing we know, we're all on the boat going home. And um, Nayland Smith is like, well, we never know if there'll be another Fu Manchu. So I'm going to dump this sword in the ocean. And of course, we get one final gag right before we close of a Chinese waiter walking around the boat uh, hitting a gong to say like, hey, it's dinner time. And they make fun of him for not being educated. It's, you know, the movie's making fun of him. I will say that the characters are praising him for not being educated. True, they are because quite... then he won't be Fu Manchu. Exactly. Yeah. This is an Asian who knows his place is the yeah. end of the movie. That's right. Uh, any Asian person is just one or maybe a few doctorates away from becoming Fu Manchu. That's right. So that's the end. Any any questions, Ben? Anything you want to add? So you glossed over some stuff that is kind of important, in my opinion, to I was just this telling movie. the plot. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I will say um, that server at the end of the movie is the only Asian character with a speaking role played by an actual Asian person and he's got like a missing tooth and he's done up to kind of look as goofy as possible. It's, it's real uncomfortable. It's, it's real yikes. So the thing about this movie, there's a lot I want to talk about. Yeah. But the first thing I want to talk about Fu Manchu and his Asian horde may be planning to wipe out the white man and take his women. But frankly, the white man doesn't come off very well either in this movie. I mean, there's some standard, like, imperialism and racism things of, like, you know, everyone, when they talk about Asians, refers to them in, as if they're, like, you know, like a race of, like, shifty, like, underhanded demon people or something. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we have our standard, like, British Museum imperialism of, like, going to other countries and, like, grave robbing their their artifacts and taking them back to the museum and stuff. And those are just, that's kind of stuff's just all throughout the movie. But, like, that's just kind of, like, standard 1930s British racism. Especially for an adventure movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, there are degrees of that that are, to a certain extent, just kind of, like... Par for the course. Right. Um, but then there's just, like, the really subhuman way that the movie presents Asian people and has the heroes, like, all kind of universally looking down on a continent which holds you know, most of humanity and painting them with like the same brush overall. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's um, both when we're at the climax in the amphitheater, but also, you know, at some point when like Fu Manchu is hosting a party, a party, I don't know, um, and has people from all across the East present. Um, we see a whole 
range of different kind of Eastern cultures, from Arabs to um, some uh, made-up kind of culture things, like, it's like weird hats that aren't actually tied to any kind of culture, but it's like, well, this looks foreign. Well, I mean, I think there's like, you know, there's like some Indian subcontinent guys with like turbans and there's yeah. like some guys with fezes. And yeah, um, the thing is, like Fu Manchu is a villain for wanting to wipe out white men and rape white women. But then the movie ends in a really disturbing fashion in my mind, because the way you kind of said it in the plot summary kind of glossed over this. But like, it's not like Nayland Smith and Von Berg turn on the death ray, shoot the sword, and then the death ray just kind of goes out of control and shoots everyone else. Like, Fu Manchu has a huge crowd of chieftains, is what he calls them, his chieftains, who are here to listen to his speech about how we're going to rise up and kill all the white men. They keep referring to it as the, like, the uprising, which is a really weird and interesting thing to call it, and we can dig into that later. Um, but they're all like super on board and cheering. And there's sort of this idea that because he has Genghis Khan's shit, you know, he's uniting the East under his banner. And then like once Terry slashes Fu Manchu and kills him, Von Berg and Nayland Smith slaughter all of those chieftains who have not done like, yeah, they were on board for the plan, but they have like not actually done anything yet. And they just like, make sure like it's like don't miss anybody like they stay behind long enough to just sort of mow them all down with the ray gun sort of like fish in a barrel and it's like really disturbing and upsetting and it's like oh these are our heroes Mm -hmm. and it's like kind of like one thing in an action movie to kind of see someone like james bond or whatever like mow down a ton of dudes with a machine gun or something this isn't quite that This is a bunch of people stuck in a room, crowded all together with, you know, inability to get to exits underneath two other dudes with a ray gun shooting them to death. Like it's, it's not cool. Um, and it's not very heroic. Yeah. That part really bothered me. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's weird because yes, Nayland Smith and like, the our intrepid heroes aren't good people we're meant to think of them as good of course uh like that's that's the way that the movie is going um but nayland smith is also like the most boring spy ever Mm. and he's really bad at his job well he gets caught almost immediately and i wanted to mention you noted in the context setting that nayland smith is played by lewis stone right who is like super old and he, he, he looks very old here. He is 53 in this film. Daniel Craig is 53 this March. Yes. <laughs> I will say, in fairness to Lewis Stone, the expectation for movie heroes to, like, permanently be chiseled Greek gods did not exist yet. I do think in the books, at least in the later books, like, Nayland Smith is supposed to be older sort of just in the way that like he ages as time goes on and Fu Manchu does not because of his like magic elixir or whatever right you talk about how Nayland Smith is really boring I think part of that has to do with like the agenda that this movie has which is to say like we talked in the context setting about how the other whether it's like Chinese people or Arabic people or whoever we're deciding to other this year 
are basically defined in our stereotypes of them as like everything we're not or, or everything we don't want to be. Let yeah. me put it that way. So because of that, like Nayland Smith has to become like the representative of like upright, upstanding Britishness. So like he can't even really manage to like hold his cover as like a dude who wants to go to an opium den very long. He can't like walk through like a bar full of Chinese people without like openly looking at them with contempt. Like he, he can't be very interesting. However, I will say this for Nayland Smith. So when you talk to people who actually like the Fu Manchu books, one of the things they commonly bring up that's like the best part of the series is this feeling of like rivalry between Nayland Smith and Fu Manchu. Mm -hmm. And this idea that they, that each sort of like respects the other as an adversary, maybe not as a human being, but like as an adversary. The most interesting thing about Nayland Smith in this movie is that he's kind of like underhanded to the point where like when Terry's being mind controlled, it's not like out of the question that like, Oh, Nayland changed the plan on us without telling us. Mm -hmm. Um, because Nayland Smith is frequently depicted as kind of just really wanting to do whatever it takes to get Fu Manchu. The rest of everything else is just, you know, a means to an end. Like you start off with Barton and like Barton dies in this movie, which is actually something I kind of like admired the movie for was like killing the mm-hmm. old man. But Barton wouldn't have been killed by Fu Manchu if Nalan hadn't been like, hey, I need you to go on your expedition that you're planning to go on in six months now. And then we later find out like Terry, he brings the fake sword and mask to Fu Manchu to trade for Barton. And Fu Manchu's like, this is a fake. Turns out that wasn't Terry's plan. Nalan Smith switched the swords on them without telling anyone else in the group, like the night after they found them or something. He doesn't really seem to care about anything other than getting Fu Manchu. And I did find that at least interesting. sort of interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. We kind of spoke to the way that the East is depicted as a monolith, um, both in terms of the context setting and yellow peril as a concept. But, you know, we also kind of see it in this movie. Um, but I wanted to at least acknowledge that, like, the extras that we have in this movie are diverse. Uh, we have black people. We do have Asian people, uh, basically like non-white people, just kind of a mix of different ethnicities. And yes, they don't have roles. And yes, they're being pigeonholed into like in- into this terrible movie. But I wanted to at least acknowledge that, like, hey, at least they got a job. Sure. I I do want to point out several things about that that are troubling. Yeah, Um, it's not a good situation. For sure, for sure. So some of the extras are actually like Asian people. Um, Others, you can tell, are like people in yellow face. Anyone who like talks is in yellow face except for that server at the end. In the scenes with like the chieftains, it looks like there's a lot of people who are like white people in brown face to represent like Middle Eastern people. And while we see a lot of different ethnicities among Fu Manchu's sort of horde um, to represent all the various people of the East, even though that's represented in their looks and their costuming, the movie definitely presents Asians as an immense homogenous block without any like independent cultures or politics. There's a definite, like, just non-engagement with the reality 
of what was like politically going on in any part of Asia when this movie was made. And the way that the movie sort of justifies it is this idea that like Fu Manchu is positioning himself as like the new Genghis Khan and like Genghis Khan's empire stretched from, you know, Mongolia to like the Ukraine and included like China and Russia and like the, you know, Iran, the Arab territories, Turkey and everywhere in between. So I think like there's kind of your rationale for like why it's this huge group of people. It's supposed to be like all the people under Genghis Khan or whatever. Genghis Khan was like a thousand years ago, right? And you get the impression in this movie that everyone from Egypt to Korea has just been like chomping at the bit to join up all together into a big horde to wipe out white people under a single ruler. They're like so into the idea. They've just been yeah. waiting for, for somebody to come along. Like you kind of wonder what Fu Manchu needed the mask and the sword for. Yeah, um, absolutely. I was thinking that. Like it confers legitimacy on him, but none of the enthusiastic chieftains we see really seem like eager to like check the legitimacy of the sword. Like he probably could have waved that fake one around and it would have been fine. Yeah. You know, um, regardless the way that the movie ignores any of like the real world politics of this time, you know, the fact that like Japan was invading China and like all these other complex things were going on. It's sort of like if you had a movie from around this period in the 1930s depicting like England, isolationist America, France, Nazi Germany, etc., all joining together eagerly as one group because like Professor Moriarty found Excalibur. <laughs> that is so accurate, Ben. Like that's well done. That's how it's presented. Absolutely. Um, I think like case in point is the fact that they are sacrificing Sheila to their gods. Right. No. Who, who's that? Who? Right. And like, it's not. And gods, plural. Well, not, g- right. But, yeah. So like, there's some Muslim people here. Yeah. Like Muslim <laughs> people are not a gods kind of people. They're not the same religion as like Hindu people. Trust me. There's been like a lot of. Things you, about, about that. that. Right. And like, that's not the same as like Chinese religious beliefs. Like these people don't share a religion. And I think again, it comes back to like needing to present the other as everything we're not. And so like one of the ways that this movie defines white culture, which is not a real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the way this, this movie defines white culture versus Eastern culture is like, we're Christians. Yeah. And so the movie has to kind of give the enemy like a shared polytheistic religion that doesn't, exist or unite these people like in any way Mm -hmm. it's a very simplistic like us versus them Mm -hmm. that informed the script and then everything just trickles out from there like that's why we have the odd like let's stop the movie and have this christian burial yeah exactly um because we're going to be talking about gods later yeah the other thing I wanted to mention was about the the black people in this movie. Yeah. So this movie kind of presents a world that is like poised in an epic struggle of like Western culture versus Eastern culture. There's no real place for black people in this world at all. The only people we see 
of like African descent in this movie are all slaves of Fu Manchus. Yes. Like they're not like dudes on the payroll and they aren't in the chieftain's <laughs> crowd. It's yeah. all slaves. And, you know, coming back to white people not coming off great in this movie either, like Fu Manchu dispatches his slaves with the exact same like lack of concern for them as human beings as the heroes do as well. Yeah, when ordering them about yeah. when finding the tomb. Yeah, like... Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, coming back to that crowd of chieftains, I wanted to talk about, like, Fu Manchu referring to this great war on the West as an uprising. Yes. It's, well, okay, so there's a couple of interpretations of that. One, again, surface level with, like, this us versus them is, well the West has like colonized and come into these places. So they are uprising against their oppressors in the same way, like the, the box of rebellion was going on and they would characterize that as now an uprising. Right. It's just weird for me because by like the 1930s, that situation is so much more complicated. Like, yeah, there's some Western, colonialist stuff going on in the east you know you have like the french in uh indochina and you know things like that and you have the british in india still and you have things like hong kong and and whatever like little enclaves but like the chinese are are actually really busy with their own shit right about now civil war wise and also japanese invasion wise like the east it, it, the th- weird thing about phrasing it as an uprising and presenting Fu Manchu's followers as like a cornucopia of all people, you know, east of uh, the Mediterranean is that it implies that if they're doing an uprising, they are already like under the heel of like unanimously under the heel of Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And they weren't. So that kind of gives it this weird feeling of like, well, but they should be then. Like that their natural place, like if the bad guy wants to do an uprising of Asians versus white oh, people. there's the assumption that that white supremacy is just assumed. Right, exactly. Because like we don't actually rule them. So what are they uprising against? Sure. Well, they're uprising against our own natural supremacy at the top of the evolutionary ladder. Sure. And that's really fucked up. Sure. So like you're talking about, you know, how that messaging Mm -hmm. doesn't match what is going on in China, specifically in 1932. The novel came out this year as well. So it's not like a case of the novel being written around the time of the Box of Rebellion. It's it's still operating under the the worldview Mm. that we've conquered it. It's fine. Well, because like the first novels came out in like what 1913 you said yeah and i think what you have here like i'm not so much this part of the movie doesn't come across so much as like a willful misinterpretation of reality so much as it comes across as just like ignorance in the same way that like whenever hollywood goes to africa comes off as as ignorance right yeah totally i i would be incredibly surprised if Sax Fomer did any like follow-up research in the years between 1917 and 1932. Or like anyone who worked on this movie. Yeah. Specific, yeah. Right? Like the, the well, other we th- heard about how like crazy the 
production yeah. side was so like yeah. no one had time to do anything in the yeah. two months they were making this movie yeah um additionally all of the um asian chieftains as fu manchu refers to them are like definitely depicted as exactly that they're like guys in like robes and like head coverings of various kinds like waving scimitars around like you get the feeling that their intention was to like invade Europe on horseback. Yeah. There's no sense of like, well, here's our president or prime minister or here's a general with a tank. Yeah, that too. That too. Right. Like it's 1932. I have a machine gun. Like, no, it's like they're going to ride across the steps on horseback, just like Mongols. And I think, you know, in because, the, well, because of the like yellow peril thing of like, well, these people are backwards. Yes. They don't have technology. Yes, absolutely. But also, it really like, okay, I find it interesting and significant and kind of superior to the novel in a weird sicko kind of way that like the novel is all about like the mask of some like random fictitious Egyptian pharaoh that Fu Manchu wants. Well, philosopher, but yeah. Okay. Um, guy who got mummified. Whereas here it's, it's Genghis Khan. And on the one hand that does like just sort of simplify the narrative. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, the other thing is it makes very explicit something that is, that comes up all the time with yellow peril shit all the time. And I think is really at the heart of it to a certain degree. And that is like that in some ways, yellow peril is reflective of like a deep seated, like cultural trauma of the Mongol invasions of the 13th century. The fact that like these guys rode across and conquered more of earth than anyone ever did um, all the way over to Europe is like weirdly evoked in all yellow peril stuff, regardless of the actual political context at the time, like the Mandarin in Marvel comics, like wants to become the new Genghis Khan and the villain in iron man the new like the 10 rings guy uh who's working for jeff bridges like he's obsessed with like being the new genghis khan and like these are like chinese and like afghani like characters who are just like super worshiping of this like mongol war leader from a thousand years ago and that's again part of like painting asia with like a monolithic brush because like i don't necessarily like know if, you know, like, Chinese people are really, like, raised in a culture to, like, venerate Genghis Khan. No, China has its own issues with Mongolia, Ben. Yeah, exactly. There's a whole wall exactly. about it. So, like, exactly, right? So it's this idea of, like, well, no, naturally any Asian, uh, like, would-be dictator is trying to be the new Genghis Khan. And so, like, the villains are going to be on horseback just like the Mongolians were. So I think you might be hitting on something a little bit, but also, like putting a little too much weight behind it. Sure. So Yellow Peril, like I said, in the context setting, comes from this sociologist in Russia, mm -hmm. which is like right next to Mongolia. Yeah. So if there is that trauma, I can imagine it being in Eastern Russia, um, if not like, you know, Russia at large. I don't know enough about Russia to be able to like really sure. say that. But I think the reason why the name Genghis Khan is consistently and repeatedly invoked is because branding yes <laughs> maybe this is just my marketing hat but it's just like that's a name everyone knows yes 
I think you're totally right. I think you are absolutely totally right. But I think it means that like our imagery around Eastern invaders remains like rooted in this like 13th century idea. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think you're totally right about just like, you know, if I'm writing a script, like the mask of Achman Ratep, like. That was, I, it, it's such a weird, it's definitely just a made up name. Yeah. El Mokama. Okay, that that's like nothing. It, that sounds more Spanish than right. anything, and we're supposed to be in Egypt, <laughs> right? What are you on, sex Romer? Yeah. Come on. But like, yeah, like I, if I was a screenwriter looking at that, I'd be like, "Fuck that!" It's Genghis Khan, yeah. like, right? But yeah, it's just another example of kind of like compressing billions of people down to a single idea. Absolutely. You've identified like things in the movie that are definitely like disturbing, um, problematic to use the parlance of our times. Sure, sure. Um, but the movie is definitely a comic book movie. It honestly felt closer to the serials yes. at the time yeah, than absolutely. a comic book movie. Yeah, it feels like. I mean, it felt like Flash Gordon uh, when you know the spiked walls are closing in on von berg i was like oh gee willikers batman how are we going to get out of this one yeah and like the way that um sort of everything between finding the mask and the sword and killing everyone with a death ray feels like a bunch of like shorts intercut yeah like short um episodes Right. Like I totally had the exact same thought that like this is a feature length serial, Mm -hmm. which in modern terms basically makes it an Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) Um, And I'll talk about that in a second. And this probably speaks to Karloff and Loy's acting um, and bringing like some spark of life to what's on this piece of paper called a script. Um, Today's script notes. Right. Um, Fu Manchu and his daughter kind of like the only interesting people yes um which means that you kind of end up rooting for them yes and it's like what i talked about in the context setting where like as rooted in horrific racism as fu manchu is the reason people kept making fu manchu stuff was because fu manchu was cool yeah um and it's definitely like you talk about the villains being the most fun and kind of you rooting for them and like that's the batman thing yeah. Right? Where everyone likes the villains way more than they like Batman. Absolutely. And I think that serial nature and like the comic book feel also is what made me laugh at the movie mm-hmm. a bit. Um, when Kurloff is giving these spiels about like fuck the white race that I, I just started kind of like laughing at because it's so absurd. Yeah. And I mean, this was part of Karloff's defense of the movie, right? Was yeah. that it, you couldn't take it seriously because it's so over the top and it's such a comic book. And, you know, we've already identified what the problems with saying that are, Yeah, but it is kind of true in the sense that if you are going to enjoy this movie, it's going to be because it's such a clearly comic book adventure movie, pulpy kind of thing. Yeah, there were also times where I just, I couldn't help. I I had no response except to laugh when this character who is the embodiment of Yellow Pearl um, is an expression of the existential threat that the West seemed to have. And the only way to expel that threat, to demonstrate that threat, is through this, like, comic book way and... What I'm really trying to say here is like what is like ridiculous fear 
that is. Right. If like your big, huge existentialist threat that's like motivating you about how like the we, we need to beware of Chinese people and stuff when your like main way of expressing that is to create a pulp supervillain who has a death ray and shit, like it's hard to take your fear seriously. Correct. Yes. Um, and also just like serves to demonstrate that your fear has no basis in reality. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that you just racist assholes for the record. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Speaking of Karloff and Loy. Um, you know, you talk about them being the most enjoyable part of the movie, which is true. I think you'll agree with me that there's like not enough Myrna Loy in this movie. I was hoping for more. Yes. It's sort of like every time she's about to get to do something, she gets interrupted. Like they, they know that her character's kind of fucked up. And so like they, they keep hinting at shit, but not really going into it. Like the big scene that everyone points to um, is the one where uh, Terry's getting whipped and she's just like faster, faster. And one of the fun things about the uncut version that we watched is you can kind of tell what the stuff that was cut out over the decades was because it's in like a slightly lower picture or audio quality than the surrounding stuff. Yeah. I would say that that's probably beyond just laughing at the yellow peril concept. Mm. Um, the other interesting thing about this movie is being able to see what was cut for that self-censorship um, versus the original. It, it's just curious to see like how their boundaries, them as in um, the people who made the cuts, right. um, how what was deemed acceptable changed over time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, remembering that those cuts were made over time. So like it was as different things were found unacceptable about yeah. the movie. Like the, um, the line about we must eradicate the white man and enslave his women. Yeah. And take his women. Um, that line got like a lot of criticism and was like frequently pointed to as a problem. Who do you think had a problem with that line? Um, the Chinese embassy. Sure. Because, because they, they want diplomatic relations. Yeah. They didn't like the idea of presenting that as the motivation of Asian people. Yeah. Like that was super problematic. Right. And so like, the thing is, the conflict in this movie, even if on a personal level it's Nayland Smith versus Fu Manchu, like in broader terms, this is literally a racist movie. Mm -hmm. And why I say literally is because it's not just about like, oh, here's some slurs against Asian people or like here's some story ideas that you could see someone maybe innocently doing because they didn't really think about the, the biases they have in their own culture, but are actually racist. Like we're not talking about like the vague way that like, um, you know, housing in the U S is racist or something where it's like, Oh yeah, the system is kind of like rigged against them in this way. When we talk about this movie being racist, we are talking about this movie being informed by a worldview that is centered on an interpretation of race as being a hierarchical structure yeah. from better races to worse races. And so the thing is, it means that all of this movie is potentially offensive because everyone in it is racist. Like, yeah, Fu Manchu's saying a bunch of upsetting stuff about like, yeah, where the white women at? But like Nayland Smith, on the other hand, is saying a bunch of stuff about like, oh, the, the cunning of the Chinaman and stuff like like nobody 
is okay <laughs> in yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, but the production design's nice. It is cool. It's very impressive and pretty. They clearly spent money. Um, you were talking about like the the script drafts a little while ago, right? Yeah. Like, so um, <laughs> it's not the sword of Fu Manchu. It's <laughs> the mask. Yet, who gives a fuck about the mask? Yeah, he gets the mask and just kind of tosses it aside. He yeah, does it, wear it at the end when he's like waving the sword around. But yeah, the sword seems to be like the bigger deal, right? Yeah, um, that's the most obvious like wires what got happened. crossed here. Yeah. Um, did you notice that like we have no idea what happens to follow C? Yeah, no, she just completely disappears. So that was because no one could decide what to do with her. Oh. They just kept changing that over and over again. No one could decide what version was better. And they ultimately just decided to like not address it Shuffle her because off. nobody could decide like, should she die? die because she's evil and bad? Should she live because she's a woman? Should we keep her alive for a sequel or should we make sure that like her sins are punished? Like, nobody fucking had any clue on what to do about her. So yeah. she just kind of vanishes. I just assumed that was because um, movies of this time and now tend to forget about female characters. No. Yeah. It was definitely like they knew they should be doing something with her, but no one could decide what. So they were like, yeah, we'll just not do it. And I'm sure people won't notice. I noticed. I'm always going to notice whether Myrna Loy is on screen. Yeah, for sure. Totally fair. Um, speaking of movies today, <laughs> the ending of this movie is super underwhelming. Oh, absolutely. Like after all of this, Fu Manchu is taken down because Terry like grabs the sword and just kind of like slashes at him and he goes, ah, and falls back. And it's in like a wide shot. Yeah. Like what? That's so lame. And then after all that, he was just a man. <laughs> Right, except it's not even that. It's just like, okay, cool, he's dead. Um, <laughs> and it's funny to me how the movie ends with the characters expressing this, like, fear that he's secretly still out there. But, like, nope, he's definitely dead. It's just a gag. When, like, today, like, 100%, we would have a stinger showing that, like, he was still alive. Like, the thing where one of the characters, when they're about to toss the sword in the water, was like, I wouldn't be surprised if his hand reached up out of the depths of the ocean and grabbed the sword or whatever. Like, that 100%, that would be the stinger to the movie now. And then the credits would start. And then, like, midway through the credits, there'd be, like, a second stinger showing what happened to Follow C and, like, setting up her, like, independent movie spinoff that's going to happen. And then, like, at the end end of the credits, there'd be, like, a third stinger showing like the continuing adventures of like the shopkeep who led Nalan into the opium den. Like it is kind of hilarious from a modern perspective, how much this movie that is based on a book that's part of a long running, like big franchise does not suggest anything about this being a continuing series. It's like, Nope. Yeah. 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 So I just, from a modern perspective, like really found that amusing. Absolutely. I think the only thing about comparing this to modern movies that made me laugh was that fact of Lewis Stone and Daniel Craig being the <laughs> same fucking age. Um, so I wanted to just mention that uh, Karen Morley, who plays Sheila, mm -hmm. is just bad. Yeah, she's not a good actress. No. no. She goes on to do really cool stuff outside of acting. Look back to the context setting for more info. Uh, right. But like, yeah, she's not a good actress. Charles Sterrett, who plays Terry, gets some life 
in him mm. when he gets to be evil. Yeah, as he, is like usual for like characters and roles like this. Yeah, but um, he he's all right. Yeah, he's he's a bog standard like cardboard cutout, square jaw, handsome action movie hero. Like yeah. that's just all he kind of is. Karloff is good. Hmm. Um, and it feels weird <laughs> because he is playing a racist caricature. Yeah, he's doing a good job of playing a racist caricature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to mention he doesn't bring in any kind of accent except his own. Right. <laughs> um, he is definitely chewing scenery and having fun. Um, but you know, if you want to watch Karloff be good in a movie, you can see him be good in better movies. I do want to say my favorite line of Fu Manchu's in the whole movie is when I think it's when Lionel Barton is first brought to him. And he's like, ah, you dastardly Fu Manchu. Like, what are you going to do to me? And his response is like, I hold a doctorate of philosophy from Edinburgh, a doctorate of law from Christ College, and a doctorate of medicine from Oxford. Out of courtesy, my friends call me doctor. I just, that's a great line. Yeah. That's a good line. Um, I do just want to point out the idea of uh, if someone wants to be, like, accomplished, even to be a supervillain, definitely can't be educated in the East has to go to the West. Sure, absolutely. Although I will counter that with at least saying that like foreign countries sending their scions to like Western universities to be educated was like extremely common at this time. Like it's true of like, yeah. uh, you know, Prince Faisal and all these other people, right? So. Yeah, I'm, I'm just putting things oh, out there. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yes, you can kind of see he's having fun. I think you can also see Karloff have fun in better roles like the body snatcher huh? is like just one single example yeah the scream scene list is full of them the thing about this movie ultimately is while there are a lot of fun things in this movie all of them are basically standard adventure movie tropes you know lost artifacts from forgotten tombs assassinations disguises close calls Mad scientists, mind control, death rays, giant villain lairs, femme fatales, torture, death traps. And while it's true that like the Fu Manchu stories may be the originator or like popularizer of a lot of those tropes, and therefore like this movie has like an important like historical place as being like the first movie on a grand scale to kind of show those kinds of things, the fact is that because these are all standard genre tropes, they've all been done in other movies that don't have the racism. Mm -hmm. So like if you want your big megalomaniacal villain, like pick a James Bond movie. If you want the like race for the hidden artifacts thing, pick an Indiana Jones movie, right? Like there are a lot of modern movies that still have all of these fun elements that aren't rooted in a like fundamentally hateful worldview yeah that being said there are some directors and writers who grew up with pulp stuff like yes Fu Manchu and didn't recognize that hey some of this stuff is at the very least problematic and it gets perpetuated yes um and I am speaking specifically of uh Phantom Menace from George Lucas sure I mean I think Lucas and Spielberg, you know, who both were Indiana Jones guys, 
definitely like their filmmaking draws on their upbringing which draws from this pulp stuff and yeah like phantom menace has aliens who are based on like the shifty asian bureaucrat sort of like stereotype and ultimately although this is an example of like being able to do this without carrying the racism forward like the emperor in return of the jedi is a take on ming the merciless who is a sci-fi take on Fu Manchu, but by the time you get like two generations away to Star Wars, there's nothing Asian mm-hmm. about the Emperor. But yeah, you are absolutely right to point out that like these things have persisted because of people who grew up with them. Because when you're a kid, you just like you, that's just a fun story. Yeah, and you don't question it. You're just like, yeah, this guy's fun and cool, and like that was part of those stories back then, and I want to evoke those stories. And you aren't like thinking about it. I will say that while that's the reason for those elements in like Phantom Menace in particular, I'll stick with that example. I think that there's one thing for like unconsciously evoking those harmful tropes when you're like in your late twenties, early thirties, making like your first big movie. And it's another thing to be evoking those tropes like 30 years later when you're in your fifties and you're the head of like a major media empire. You should know better, or at the very least, you should have someone who on knows staff. better on payroll. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> who you will listen to, because yeah, that was the other problem for Lucas. Yes, who you will listen to and who feels comfortable saying no to you. Yes. <laughs> that is like the one, like, Phantom Menace is like a movie in and of itself. Uh, but I do enjoy watching it to look at how these racist tropes and stereotypes are being adapted, like, so many years later. Yeah, and, um, and like so many sci- generations removed. Yeah, and how like they you can still trace it back to stuff like Fu Manchu. Right, and it's like, very interesting to me to be able to like see that lineage. Oh yeah, and like the way that um, like when I was a teenager, Jar Jar Binks was super annoying, and like nobody liked him. That was just like a meme in Star Wars fandom that like Jar Jar Binks sucks. But like it wasn't till much later in my life, like when I started actually watching the like 1940s jungle adventure movies that like Lucas grew up with and stuff and was was pulling from that I like connected Jar Jar Binks with like the wide eyed, like um, cowardly darky uh, sidekick character from those movies. Right. Yeah. I just think that it's a very um, apt point to point out that like, you know, while there are a lot of movies that do what this movie does without the uncomfortable racism. As I said, it's also important to recognize, as you said, that a lot of those movies still have echoes of these tropes in them because of, because it's like trying to sift something out of a drink, right? Like if I make like a mixed drink and then the person is like, Oh, I said Ryan Coke, not rum and Coke. And then I'm trying to like, get the the rum rum out and put rye in like you're still probably going to have an aftertaste of rum in there yeah yeah an aftertaste of racism (laughs) but that is not this movie this is a full shot yes a full (laughs) shot of racism well creatures of the night thank you so much for joining us for this bonus horror adjacent episode we hope you have enjoyed it If you want to vote for next month's episode, you can head to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and sign up and you'll be able to vote. Thank you for the patrons of the night who voted for this film. 
Um, I'm sure you knew exactly what snake pit you were throwing us into when you made that <laughs> Why vote. is it always snakes? Um, but, you know, uh, I hope you enjoy this episode as well. And, uh, yeah, we will see you for uh, our next regularly scheduled episode on Wednesday. Bye. Bye.